presumptuous of us to assume that the Earth is uh, the only inhabited planet in the universe. From strange lights in the sky to the truth about Area 51, unidentified flying objects remain cloaked in mystery. So says the blurb of Adam Allsuch Boardman's wonderful new book, An Illustrated History of UFOs, in which the intrepid author and artist attempts to illuminate such mysteries, drawing and narrating some of the past's most famous cases and the artifacts, agencies, aircraft, and maybe, just maybe, aliens behind them. In today's episode of UFO Law, academic Dr. David Clark and journalist Richard Wilson speak to Adam about his work, touching upon everything from his aesthetic inspiration and motivations to his favourite UFO and the blurred boundaries between ufology, science fiction and art. Enjoy. So hello, Adam. Where, where are you joining us from this day? I'm joining you from sunny Leeds, surprisingly. It's just stopped raining. Um, well, I'm in Sheffield today and also in Sheffield, but at a different location because we are socially distancing. We have, as always, Associate Professor Dr. David Clark. Hello. So, first of all, Adam, it's a beautiful book. Thank you very much. It took me ages. <laughs> Clearly, I mean, not just the artwork but the research into the whole history of ufo culture yes it was quite an intimidating task uh, i guess double the research because i was looking at the visual information as well as the factual historical you know broad strokes of uh, uh an area of research that's been going on for a long time, not just since 1947, but preceding that as a sort of prehistory of people seeing things in the sky, etc. Well, talking about seeing things in the sky, have you seen a UFO then? Have you seen something which you can't explain in our skies? I have to be honest, I haven't seen a UFO. But during the research of the book, I did begin to experience sleep paralysis. And through the lens of someone else, they might say, ah, it's all coming together, you are now being visited. But uh, when I had my first experience, uh, I just reflected on the fact I'd just been reading all about it, so rationalised it and uh, went back to sleep. But that was quite unusual the first time it happened, but uh, I'm sorry to say I haven't really seen a, a flying saucer or any other unidentifiable phenomena in the sky. So how, how did you know that it was sleep paralysis then, Adam? Well, when I sort of woke up, it must have been 2 a.m., you know, peak strangeness time. Mm. Um, I felt a weight on my chest, and I thought, hang on, that's a telltale sign of sleep paralysis, which I've just been reading about. And then in the periphery of my vision, I couldn't see it, but I had the impression that there was something there, like a, a figure. And then after a minute or two, I just went back to sleep because I had just been reading about it. So, and this was the first my... time you'd experienced something like that? Yes. In my whole life, uh, I haven't really encountered too much of the paranormal firsthand. But, you know, people have told me about their own experiences. You know, when you tell someone you're working on a, a book about UFOs, they will immediately open up to you. I don't know if you've found a similar thing, but uh, people went out of their way to tell me about their experiences. So what, what sparked your interest in the first place then? I mean, cause it's quite a major product project that you took on with this. And like you say, it took you a long, long time to produce it. An awful lot of work uh, went into it. So what was your inspiration? Was, was Is there something that sort of, you have you always been interested in UFOs and this was an opportunity to sort of turn that into something that you could, you know, touch and feel and read? Yeah, definitely. I think it must have started in childhood, thanks to the presence of X-Files just on all the time, whether it was on VHS or reruns on the BBC. I'm not sure which channel showed it. And then it was, there was the BBC, yeah. BBC Two. Nice. Uh, and then there was Stargate SG-1, I think probably on BBC Two, and The Next Generation. All sci-fi stuff uh, just really influenced me as a child. Probably saw a few of those things a bit too young, but, um, you know, here we are. Uh, 
20 odd years later and I've written a book about UFOs, so it couldn't have been too bad. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's an interesting point that you make there about the fact that you got into it through watching science fiction and reading yeah. science fiction, because similar path to how I got into the subject, but I read quite a lot of um, accounts that talk about real sci-fi book buffs aren't interested in UFOs, that they see it as some kind of sort of, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't, it, it's got nothing to do with science fiction. So there, mm. there is sort of like people like ourselves who watched and read sci-fi, I mean, like Doctor Who and all these other yes. programs. And I made the immediate leap into all the sort of the paperback books on UFOs. But but mm -hmm. a lot of people who see themselves as pure sci-fi buffs wouldn't touch UFOs with a barge pole, proverbial. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think some of that might be uh, a certain um, void of flying saucer or ufo based science fiction films within a certain period of time because of course there was close encounters of a third kind and then perhaps a gap yeah. um yeah. and then x-files was of course very influential but i can't think of too many large franchises that would have had uh, such a large influence over the mainstream science fiction community well, compared there's... to star trek or star wars having a yeah. more fantastical uh, perspective. Well, there is there's, there's series like Spielberg's Taken, isn't there? That sort of. I mean, mm. I, I just see all this as feed, it, they all feed into each other. So I think this yes. idea that there is science fiction and UFOs and that these are two separate things is, yeah. is a bit of a bit of a nonsense, really, because the two have always fed into each other. And I think you you yeah. you put that across really well in the early chapters of your book where you talk about all the stuff that came in the past, you know, the phantom airships, the, I love what you did with the Shaver mystery as well. But yes. You, I thought that was really important yeah. to show how, uh, sort of a pulp sci-fi background fed into that early flying saucer experience and how popular culture can kind of color the experiences of that time. Yeah. How there's a, well, it's art imitating life and life imitating art Absolutely. relationship. Mm. Or um, a sort of a, a Jean Baudrillard way of looking at it, where it's simulation and simulacra, where people are creating a, a sort of a their own reality when they're viewing something they don't understand, and they're basing that on things they're more familiar with in science fiction. So, so we're actually touching here on the artistic process, which is the next thing we wanted to ask you about. I mean, can you describe to us how you know how you got into into this in the first place? What your artistic process is, and what what would you describe as your particular style? Because you have a very very individual style. You know, I would describe it as I think one of the reviewers for your previous book described it as clean, crisp layout and style. That's uh, very much how I would describe it as well. So how, where did that come from? What inspired you? Is there any particular source? Uh, well, as a child, I read a lot of Tintin. Um, Tintin, that is... I was thinking, where have I seen that kind of artwork <laughs> before? And it is, it's Tintin. It is Tintin, well, yeah. Influence, yeah. yeah, I can see the influence, <laughs> yeah. I loved uh, the, uh, the Crystal Balls mystery. Um, oh, what's the title of that one? The Seven Crystal Balls. Uh, and the Blue Lotus, and of course there's horrible themes of racism and post-colonialism, but the artwork itself is wonderful. You, you can't really remove the fact that it's of its time, you know. It's it's good to engage with the fact that it's a product of the, you know, 1930s, etc. Um, the artwork itself has aged very well, I think. It's a clean aesthetic, and my artwork I've been an uh, illustrator for about five years now, and I started out in museum exhibit illustration. So I'd do diagrams which would show members of the public how to use interactive exhibits or explain peculiar concepts, scientific or historical. Um, and I first got into publishing uh, three or four years ago with my first book, uh, An Illustrated History of Filmmaking, with my publisher, No Brown. And on completion of that project, I pitched uh, my idea to do a book about UFOs on a, following a similar structure, a sort of a historical broad strokes, um, you know, look at a large subject in an illustrated package, something engaging, colorful, 
uh, are not intimidating for a new audience that's not familiar with the subject. It might not have been intimidating for the audience because it's not. You really tell the, tell it well. But were you not intimidated of taking on such an ambitious project and taking this this interest which was ignited with you know through watching sci-fi, which Dave said and myself have got us interested in this area, and then you you've just like taken on the whole history of UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my my primary concern was to put it across in a an amusing way, an engaging way, without annoying the existing roster of experts, etc. So everyone would be able to enjoy it without annoying anyone. That was my greatest fear: was to uh, not get anything incorrect or introduce ideas that were just plain wrong. Uh, how you did know? you go about that then? I mean, how did you do the research? For this well it began with just reading a whole load of books really um including dave uh, sorry including dave Platt. <laughs> yes uh i got that as a christmas present for my brother and then when i started this project i sort of stole it back from him <laughs> uh but yeah i really loved that uh the david uh david's book which was the uh pictures from the national archive mm-hmm in particular, because I really like the dreamlike quality of witness accounts, especially when they apply them with their artistic talents. Whether it's charming charcoal drawings or intricate, you know, colouring pencil diagrams, uh, I think they're all great. Um, but yeah, start off with books, uh, various peculiar websites yeah. uh, and this evolved into creating a big cork board in my bedroom uh, upon which I did the classic you know cutting things out and joining it together with string just for the novelty of it um, but that was a lot of fun uh, and that would evolve into just visual research at the same time as writing so I would write a sort of overview of the history as a really long word document, essentially. At the same time, I would do sketches based on what I'd seen in books or what I'd read from witness accounts and try and create things that I hadn't seen depicted before. I think that was something I was more... Uh, that was so that was something I was very excited about, was the opportunity to visualise things that I hadn't seen done before. Which was a difficult thing to balance because... I guess a lot of UFO, book, UFO books, um, the descriptions of things, the interest can be from the fact that they are um, difficult to imagine or that they have a fantastical, unvisualizable uh, description. Or if you over depict them, they can look really fake and tacky, if you see what I mean. Um, it reminds me of Close Encounters of a Third Kind, the Spielberg film. Like, towards the beginning of the film, they are moving lights, etc. And as the film goes on, you see a bit more and more of them, yeah. and they start to look more like flying cars, and then finally you have the huge chandelier coming out of the sky. Uh, which is a Spielberg technique, because um, in his movie Jaws... Of course. Or you just see glimpses and fins... And it's not until that bit where Roy Schneider's chucking out the chum and then the shark jumps out and it's the, we're going to need a bigger boat sort of line. Yeah. That, that build-up, yeah, I can appreciate that. i tell you the other things I really, and what I loved looking at was, especially that one with the underground facility. Oh, the dull, all the dull, dull space. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I read the book in one night. I just, the kids were in bed, wife was watching Bake Off or something and I just read it. But then I'd go back and then just look at the pictures. I just love looking at the pictures and the little underground railway. And, um, There's so drawing. much detail, yeah. so much detail in each of those drawings. That's what I love. Was there um, a particular case or sighting which you became obsessed with, with when researching and writing? I really enjoyed the drama of the Rendlesham incident, especially because of the 20 minutes or so tape that's yeah. available to listen to on YouTube of the uh, soldiers running around in the woods getting very excited about, uh, you know, heat appearing on a bit of wood or uh, 
a bit of light peering, peeking through the branches, etc. Lighthouse. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> spoil, um, spoil. But it was, um, it, was, uh, it was just a very interesting case um, that happened over, what, two days? And, uh, and how it's gained this mythology. My eighth or birthday. legend over the years. That was the day it happened on my eighth birthday. So, wow. Um, well, you know, it's the 40th anniversary um, coming up, and we have a special oh program in this uh, UFO Law series. Get but, that plug uh, in. Yeah. Just drop that in. Just, just <laughs> nice. <to>. Seamless. <laughs> hey, one thing, I mean, obviously, yes, I absolutely love the drawings, but I find myself chuckling out loud. I love your turn of phrase, and I love the, I love the lines, for example when you talked about the, the, the small greys and the large greys, and the large greys were charged <laughs> and probably got paid more. Um, it's probably true. It's not <laughs> something they often bring up in books, but I think uh, it's an injustice that needs to be inspected more thoroughly. I'd, I'd like to see myself as a sceptic who is desperate to find out that there are aliens, and yes. I'm being very picky in my approach. But I'm not going to... I want some convincing. But do you, do you think or believe that some UFOs do have, actually do have an extraterrestrial or, or paranormal explanation. I think in creating the book, my opinion changed several times. And it'll probably change again. Uh, so at one stage of research, I thought, this is it. This I'm going to find the truth. It could happen any minute. Disclosure's going to drop any second. And they're going to raid Area 51, and they're going to bring out those imprisoned grey aliens. And then the next minute is, oh, this is all nonsense. Um, uh, it's all just a series of misunderstandings that have spiralled out of control from Cold War paranoia. But um, I think I am a sceptic, but with the a similar optimistic perspective that perhaps eventually something will reveal itself. Who knows? It's a frustrating conclusion to many narratives is that maybe we'll never know but the truth is out there the, fun. the truth is out there exactly <laughs> yeah I how was... do you feel how do you feel about the four dimensional explanation that a lot of people because what i've seen in my long experience in this field is that people get into it and they're convinced initially that these things are visitors from you know the science fiction thing craft yeah. from other worlds and That's then when they start looking at it in more detail, they realise that it's absolutely untenable that that could be the explanation. And mm. then, so, because they, they, they can't just accept that people make mistakes or that there are these other down-to-earth explanations. They have to look for something else, which is where they get into the, you know, what I'd describe as the 4D explanation, you know, the sort of ultra-terrestrials, if you're familiar with John Keel's um, writings and the sort of 40 mm. sort of ideas. How, how do you feel about that? I suppose that would be, from my outsider perspective, no different to aliens coming from Zeta Reticuli, because I, there's no evidence that I can see for that. It's just another magical way of seeing it. Yeah. Um, because there's no smoking gun for something from coming from a higher dimensional plane, from what I can see. But also, it's unscientific because it's impossible to disprove. Yes, <laughs> it's so magical that, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. There's always, you know, whatever someone comes up comes up with in terms of, you know, we we can find a, a normal explanation for this. Then someone can always say, "Oh, well, that's the cosmic trickster at work," you know. Yes, Q that, from something. the next generation. Yes, yeah. uh, mm. it reminds me of the arguments that. Uh, the universe is a simulation like there's no you can't prove it or disprove it really mm. so it's sort of mystic thinking really but it is based in a a popular current uh sort of scientific theory or postulation yeah right? i yeah. mean people people invoke quantum physics don't they and things like that when they start talking about these um 4d explanations but really it, it doesn't it doesn't add up yeah, there's mm. the uh, my favourite one is that reality is the holographic projection of a two D existence on the event horizon of a black hole. Oh my goodness! If that makes any sense, uh, it I'm going to need Carl Sagan to that to explain that, or Brian Cox <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brian with his Cox. dulcet tones. <laughs> yes. 
Well, the world is actually a holographic projection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on on the subject of famous people or not so famous people, Adam, if you um, if you could choose to have dinner with a famous ufologist or UFO authority, uh, alive or dead, who would it be? Dave uh, Clark. Yes, well, of course. Uh, okay, so present company excluded. Present company excluded, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to involve at least one fictional figure. Uh, well, I guess there's J. Allen Hynek, just for the uh, facial hair, and pipe. so I can, you know, have a go on the pipe. Uh, maybe Stanton Friedman for his energy, and Valiant Thor who was the alleged alien who worked at the White House. Brilliant, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which was the one person I didn't uh, include in the book that I really wanted to. I wanted to give him a cameo somewhere. How, how do you, when you write in the book and you've got so much to include, yeah. how do you know what to leave out? Well, a lot of the things that I had to leave out would end up as Easter eggs in other pages. So one of the spreads is a illustrated version of the corkboard in my bedroom. And just a lot of the stuff that. in there... It's just stuff that couldn't make the final cut. Mm. Due mm. to discussions with my uh, wonderful editors or uh, designers at the publishing house, um, it was a wonderfully collaborative ex uh, experience, you see. So they would feedback on the things I'd written or drawn, and we'd decide as a group yeah. uh, what would get cut and what would go in or what needed to be well, what, explained yeah. in a more clear way or... Um, but yeah, things that would get left out would just sort of get sneaked in as a little Easter egg, basically. And I'm just pleased you described me as a journalist rather than a ufologist, Adam. That's that's what made it for me. Right. So you prefer not to go by that title. I'm glad I made that distinction. Yes, because I don't regard myself as a as a ufologist. I may have been at one time. How does one become a ufologist? You just that's announce it, very good and question. then you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a uni of U UFOs? Or do you just have to write a book and then you are one? I think ufologist is, is uh, the definition of it, is someone who is a student of the subject, whereas I just regard it, the subject as one part of a whole host of other interesting things, you know, in, as you've covered yourself in your book, you know, ancient mm -hmm. astronauts, cryptids, uh, Fortean things, you know. So to, I, I think if, you, if you're a student of ufology and that is all you're interested in, you're not really yeah. going to have the context and the perspective that you get from being, say, into Fortean phenomena, or you know, someone who's into a, who's interested in a whole range of things. Because what you realise is, is that, for example, ufology is is virtually it's a very very similar um, uh, sort of uh, um, syndrome that people got caught up in in the late nineteenth century during the the spiritualist craze. Yes. Again, you cover that amazingly. I don't know how you've fitted all these different things into your book. I mean, as Richard was saying, it's a, it's quite a feat that you've been able to do that. Very com but, yeah. but flows. Thank you. I, I love that Nessie made it because Nessie was the first thing to capture my attention, uh, <laughs> sort of imagination. And uh, that's interesting what you were saying, Dave, about it's, it's all part of the same spectrum. It's the same yes. thing. But Nessie being an alien, I like it. It could be a hybrid experiment, perhaps, or placed here to observe us, Do or a Do test, perhaps. Doctor Who fans here will be remembering the, the terror of the Zygons. Oh, Do you remember that, anyone? Yes, Tom Baker yes, episode? Yes. Where it turned out that um, the Loch Ness Monster was actually uh, something that uh, the Zygons, which were an alien race that had crash-landed crash on Earth, was it, creatures. or something? Yeah. Yes. And they were, they were using this mechanical thing, which was Nessie. To mm -hmm. scare people away from where their underground base was. So a Scooby-Doo plot. Yeah. <laughs> or, or... Except it was aliens under the mask. So they were using a, a, a supernatural character to put throw people off the, the scent. Yes. Just Which like is... the American government did, so we didn't know they were spying on Russia with yeah. a U2 plane or something. And if it wasn't for you meddling kids... <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I actually uh, met Tom Baker... Oh no! Actually, I missed out the big chance. I was walking through Soho once when I was uh, uh, a junior researcher in television, and somebody had just been telling me never, never, um, sort of disturb the private sort of world or of a, of a. If you see someone famous around television <laughs> centre, just let them walk past. They deserve their privacy. And I was walking down Wardour Street in Soho, and I walked past Tom Baker, and I just regret not 
grabbing him by the hand and shaking it mm. furiously and thanking him for a fantastic imaginative childhood. They're a little aside there, but um, with um, we're going back to, to to sci-fi. There was an interesting bit I I, I was reading when you were talking about the hybrids and the the Earth human and sort of Earth human alien human hybrids being secretly deposited on Earth. And it reminded me of an episode of Star Trek Enterprise where um, the Vulcans land in the 50s in America and one of them stays behind and mm. wanders the, the, the Earth interested in, in our, um, in our uh, enigmatic planet. What do you think? I mean, where do you stand on this whole idea of uh, the aliens are among us? Are they among us? Yeah, I guess it goes back to things like V, and there's probably more yeah, than one v, Star Trek yeah. episode where it happens. Um, and X-Files, of course, has the whole you know, arc of all that fun stuff. Are they here? Well, maybe. Uh, are they on the bus next to you? Are they queuing in Sainsbury's with their mask on? Also totting and wondering when it's all going to end. Um, I'm not sure. Um, perhaps they've got somewhere much more interesting to be, I think. <laughs> if they're here, they're here because uh, they're tourists or, you know, perhaps their entire culture is uh, just all about just experiencing other cultures on different planets. Who knows? But it's an interesting area of the conspiracy theory. I remember maybe 10 years ago, it was a sort of thing that you would stumble upon on YouTube where you would see these really odd uh, camera shots on of people recording their TV and saying, aha, a reptilian, or you see, they're a, they're a lizard. Uh, that seems to have diminished from the algorithm, but I remember a certain period of time where people were angrily recording their TVs to find evidence of the aliens being among us. Because you've got the, the good old reptilian, apparently that's the royal family in your book, and, Could um, be. And the, was it the Brazilian playground where the uh, where the alien was seen? Was that? I think uh, was that it? was Rua. I have to check the page now. He's, he's, he's thumbing through the book as fast as I can. <laughs> Did you feel Zimbabwe. 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 That was it. Zimbabwe. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, it's um, because I, 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 that was you know an interesting thing to see because. UFO culture seems to be in sort of an angleized, the angleized, you know, American, Europe, in Britain. Um, we don't really hear about too many. Well, yes, South America as well has had its sightings. Hmm. Is this something you saw when you were researching the book? There was certainly a lean towards sightings being a North American phenomenon, especially in the. Uh, periods I was looking at around the Cold War when I was doing that section of research. And it was, became more difficult to find sources uh, for things that happened uh, in other places in the world. I guess the uh, the interests of ufologists, many of them are North Americans, means certain uh, cases that are local to them get more attention on the internet or in books than other places would. Or that the fact that the sources I was reading were English and would therefore have a bias yeah. towards uh, primary sources being in English, so it's more difficult for me to research things that happened in Finland, for example, or Russia. I did try and keep it vaguely international. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to mm -hmm. focus entirely on yeah. things that happened in Western Europe or America, but it certainly had a lean towards it being a big American thing. Well, this, this sort of takes us into the area of... Um... UFO shapes, which you mentioned, uh, I think mm. quite early on in the book. Um, I just wonder, this is going to touching on your your artistic expertise here, and sort of from a, an aesthetic mm. perspective. Um, what I've noticed watching some of the recent programs, like this unidentified series, is this idea now that UFOs are tic tac shaped, yeah. you know, which has obviously come from all this business with the, to the Stars Academy and. You know, the AATIP and Louis Elizondo and all this sort of thing. So we seem to be being pushed into this sort of um, area now where UFOs, if it's a real UFO, is tic-tac shaped. Whereas in 1947, it was flying saucer shaped. And then we've had the triangles and mm -hmm. 
Well, have you? I mean, which one of those do you prefer from an aesthetic perspective? Well, my favourite is the old school Adamski type, which is what the hubcap from a car yeah. wheel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a beautiful design, even if it was kit bashed from various objects he allegedly found, or it maybe really was Nordic aliens. Um, <laughs> but yes, each uh, idea, the popular culture idea of a flying saucer or UFO, uh, seems to stem from the science fiction sources at the time. So you've got the early airships uh, evolving into rocket ships and yep. rocket ships turning into saucers based on uh, descriptions in the press that are misquoted, etc. Um, but it's interesting to see the evolution of a design in that organic way. You know, no, no one was going out to design something... Um, to look like it came from out of space. It was based on what people had seen and that that would then be interpreted by an illustrator or the witness trying to draw it. Um, I just found it really interesting in parallel with the designs of uh, how people interpreted aliens as well or the inhabitants of craft, you know, starting with the goblin-type creatures with protuberant ears and noses and large goggly eyes and that would change become more minimal to the familiar design of the large head lenticular eyes gray alien and then the kind of 50s 60s nordic types it was interesting to just see how these things changed depending on the tastes of the time yeah do you have a favorite alien <clears throat> Um, I like the Nordic. They they appeal to me. Yeah, they're really fun. They just remind me of, you know, classic Star Trek, really. Like, they're some sort of utopian society yeah. from beyond the stars turning up in, you know, 70s spandex, you know, <laughs> but about to get, drop a wonderful album or something. We never get Tribble aliens, do we? You know, the Tribble with Tribbles. Oh, the, yes, Small, the hairy... Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, I, I think tic-tac-shaped UFOs are rubbish. I know, prefer, yeah. Much prefer Adamski saucers any day. Yeah, I think maybe people are drawn to the more minimal, perhaps, because it's more extreme and alien-looking at this time, because we're yeah. used to things being detailed and mechanical-looking, right, in our everyday life. We want to be able to see the moving parts, and perhaps the tic-tac is the iPhone of the flying saucer, you know, yeah. because it's more minimal. It looked like it, you could buy it in a shop and uh, it, its apps would do all sorts of stuff. Who knows? Well, I'm so sure the Tic Tacs have Wi Fi and 5G, <laughs> etc. I'm going to pin you down here, Adam, with a few quick fire questions now. What, Go for it. What are you? Are you flying saucer, UFO, or WAP? UAP? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to go for UFO. Bing! I agree. <laughs> And if you had to recommend three books for newcomers to complement your own, which which would you suggest, present company accepted? Okay. Other than your fantastic books, I would go for The World of the Unknown UFOs, the Usborne book, uh, the Jack Womack Flying Sources are Real. Oh, yes. Which is yes. a wonderful book, which also has an Adamski flying saucer on the front. Good choice. For the benefit of the listeners, I'm holding up to the camera, and I've got all my and it's got lots notes of those notes. Top. Yes, there's little post-it notes that, in it. That is a wonderful, wonderful book. publication. Yeah, I it's agree. beautiful to look at. And a kind of tangential one would be Phenomena, a book of wonders, uh, which is an old, I mean, maybe seventies book. Yeah, it's a Fourteen Times publication. That one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's got some wonderful illustrations in it. Yeah, um, that's, one of, a, that's one of the books that turned me on to the subject as well. Nice. But now, it's a broad, yeah. broad strokes look at various phenomena, basically, I, not I'm, just flying saucers. I may be mistaken, but I think that that book, or the basis of it, was used as um, the basis for The Rough Guide to Strange Phenomena, which was published by the Rough Guide series. Mm. All right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the same book that was sort of recycled with some additional chapters. Hmm. So uh, now, Adam, uh, apparently a Bob Lazar is encroaching on your territory as a UFO illustrator with his um, 
imaginatively, I can't even say the word, imaginatively entitled sports, is it a sports car UFO or just the sports, sports model? Sports model. It's so shiny and reflective. Uh, well, I'm not a gatekeeper to the illustration community. I think if he wants to design flying saucers, you know, he can do it to his heart's content. I really uh, enjoy the design of the sports model. You know, if I was going to a dealership for a flying saucer, that's the one I'd pick out, I think. <laughs> well, the Adamski is more of the Volkswagen Beetle. I think the <laughs> sports model is obviously more of a, I don't know, something more impressive that would go way faster, I presume. Doesn't he claim to back-engineer them, though, rather than actually create new ones? Uh, in that he steals ideas off the aliens and back-engineers them back. Yes. <laughs> I so, believe... So if his I've got this right... <laughs> his criticism is that the seating is too small, obviously, because they're designed for a creature of a slighter stature, so perhaps it needs uh, larger seating. Something that you can recline in while you're going at 10 million miles an hour with your <laughs> gravity drive. Adam, if you were to design a UFO, um, how would you do it for your client from the Nordic um, planet? So if the Nordics came with this brief, um, I definitely would start with the Adamski type and I'm trying to improve in certain ways. I'm not sure if it requires the various hanging protuberances on the bottom. I think it needs to have a clean bottom so it can land correctly. Maybe some landing gear that comes in and out. Something that retracts in an impressive way. Uh, and a sort of a opening door, like in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, yes. I think that might be my favourite flying saucer, just thinking about it. The, they do, the Day the Earth Stood Still, that gleaming, white, minimalist nightmare. You know, just descending in a, in a field. It's a beautiful image, but uh, something streamlined, I think. So, um, where's next then, Adam, for you? Are you going to stick with in the UFO field, or are you going to dive into something new? I really enjoy the UFO field, so I'm definitely going to keep up to date with what's going on. Perhaps make uh, the occasional drawing based on, you know, sightings, etc. It's quite an engaging subject. Uh, but at the moment, I'm been working on some stuff for a local cinema, the High Park Picture House. And I've been drawing historical cinemas in Leeds. I did about 80 of them because Leeds used to have allegedly over 100 cinemas throughout its history. Because Leeds, of course, was where the first film was made by Louis Le Prince in 1888. Wow. Wow. So it's quite a rich mm. history. It's called the Round Hay Garden Scene. It's about five frames long or something. <laughs> it's uh, wonderful. Uh, but yeah, at the moment, just finishing up on that, uh, doing various um editorial illustrations but uh if ufos uh happen to call up and ask me to do some more you know inspired drawings based on their ships and experiences then i'll happily do so i i it's think it's a fun arena yeah i think your your pictures would look fantastic blown up to a5 no a2 size or a3 size and framed are you do you, do you, are you have you got any plans for that releasing prints? Yeah, of... I mean, I mean, to be to be wonderful, there's a travelling exhibition. I think some of the um, some of the the pages from your book. Have you thought of that? Uh, yeah, maybe taken into another dimension uh, and into the real, out of a book context and into a print context would mm. be interesting. Postcards, perhaps posters, or large large scale posters. Mm. I think that would be fun, of different sightings or. Uh, specific flying sources. That's a fun idea. I'll have to credit you when I do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is one of the advantages of, do, of presenting it in the way that you have, in that um, it gets around all the copyright issues, doesn't it, from using people's, uh, you know, the iconic photographs and things. Tracking down copyright orders and obtaining consent can be a nightmare, I know from my own experience. Whereas if you do a, your own artistic representation of that, uh, it's a way of of getting around all those problems and issues. Yes, it's the wonderful world of fair use. As an illustrator, Ooh. I'm creating original content. Because there is a spread in here where I drew representations of yes. famous photos of flying yes. saucers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed you used the Solway Spaceman. Yes. Which uh, which is a fa a, a, an image that I just can't get away from. It's, it's, it's something I remember seeing on, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World when I was a nipper. Yeah. And I've got a, a page on um, 
on my blog just devoted to the Burr Marsh photograph. Mm. Describe um, the picture to us, Dave. It's the, it's the one everyone will, will know. It's the little girl, about seven years old, who's sat and she's holding a posy of um, flowers. Um, I think they're called um, sea pinks, taken in Cumbria in the 1960s. And behind her head... You can just see uh, what appears to be a classic sort of alien uh, or a guy or in a beekeeper, space. as um, humorously <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. By beekeeper, yeah, beekeeper, yeah. Or uh, I'm saying a space man. I mean, it could be a space woman. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, people will will be familiar with that photograph because it, it's everywhere. Yeah. But but as I say, I've got a page on my blog devoted to it, and I it's one of the most looked at pages. I have thousands and thousands of hits every year. Mm. And I get I get messages on my blog from people who've looked at it. I, I got one just this last week from a guy who had put it through some kind of um, tech, some kind of software thing where it breaks it all down into pixels. Mm, mm. And he'd blown up the the back of the head of this space creature, and he could see what looked like a human skull oh on my. the back of the head. Really? And he was like, "What do you make of this, then, Doctor Clark?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I, I think it's a classic example of pareidolia." Of what? Pareidolia. What does that mean? It's it's seeing what look oh. what appear to be faces and other images in random dots. You know, like, uh, like clouds seeing, and stuff. Yeah, like the man or in the, the face moon. on Mars. Yeah. yeah, the face on Mars, the man in the moon. You know, faces in clouds, that kind of thing. There was a there was a classic picture taken by someone, I think, at Lyme Regis. Um, just before the COVID lockdown, and it appears to show the face of the witch emerging from these waves that are crashing onto the um, shore in, mm. in this Dorset town. And it does look like a witch, but all it is is a random collection of water that's been splashed from a wave. Yeah. You know, so that that's pareidolia, folks. I suppose as a, as an illustrator, uh, Adam, drawing a tic tac, you don't get that ability to include your creativity as you would have drawn the Adamski saucer, for example. Yes, yes. There's less opportunity to, well, the technical term is greebling when you're adding additional detail. Really? I think that comes Mm. from the kit bashing community Mm. who, you know, make spaceships or cars out of uh, different parts from model kits. Greebling. Uh, But it can be applied to any arts discipline. But... uh, the Tic Tac, when I first drew that in the book, the uh, my editor didn't notice it was there. They thought it was a speech bubble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's because really, it's just uh, white yeah. oblong. Yeah. So I had to embezzle a little bit, uh, you know, put the C behind it to create some contrast, you know, and make the airplane much closer than it was uh, in the actual report for aesthetic reasons. Otherwise, the airplane would have been a dot on the horizon. You know. uh, behind it's you- foreshortening. Artistic yeah. license. Yes, uh, behind you, I can see you on the on the on the Zoom video. You've got the classic um, Fox Mulder poster. I want to believe. Um, yes. Is that is that the one with where you can actually see the um, the wire holding it? Okay, so I checked it out, and the one I've got isn't the official one from the series. The flying saucer in it is the um, is the Bob Lazar sports model. Mm. And I don't think it's the licensed uh, one from Fox or whoever sells it now. Who owns the license for X Files now? Um, no. But the one I, I can't see a, a string on it at this time. So but it's not the official one I've got. There have been some. There, the, there are images which have been hoaxed or or have been exposed as yeah. hoax. What do you think about the way they've they've gone about creating those images? I think that's a really interesting art discipline that isn't often uh, celebrated because it crosses over into lots of other paranormal type phenomena. You know, obviously there's the the uh, original fairies. Uh, I can't remember their name. Cottingley. Cottingley, Cottingley fairies. fairies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which ooh, which is the centenary of those photographs this year. We should we should yeah. mention that. Oh. And then there's the proud tradition of ghost based photography, which is you, you know. Historically, it was double exposure and then various different methods. And then similar methods were used by photographers who deliberately created hoax flying saucers with models at home or double exposure, different methods. I think it's an interesting lineage of uh, artists that isn't often celebrated. Uh, And then there's, of course, the 
famous autopsy film from oh, the yes. 90s, which fooled many at the time. Which, which premiered just meters from where I'm sitting now here yeah. at Sheffield Hallam University. Oh, yeah, right. exactly. It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and what we shouldn't also forget about those photographs as well is that it's not just the photographs, it's the it's the artists that they inspired because a lot of the yep. books that we talked about earlier that we all we all got into as kids what was it that drew you in it was the artist's impressions of people's yep. stories wasn't it that on on the uh, on the covers of those books there's there's really striking sort of dust jackets mm. so although the photographs themselves are pretty rubbish really aren't they let's face it it's the fact that um, that the artists turned those rubbish photographs into something that inspired the imagination that yeah. I think is interesting. Projecting their imagination on it and yeah. uh, interpreting it in a unique way and then yeah. pulling on other sources in uh, science fiction. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting area of art, you know, because either you're faithful to those grainy pictures and you display something that is minimal. And, and some parts of the book I've, I've done that uh, with some... Uh, sightings, it's more or less exactly what the witness said. They saw a uh, lenticular white or silverish object. And then others I have elaborated because otherwise it would be really boring spread in the book. Like the Betty and Barney Hill interior of the spaceship. I've oh, I love that picture. Exploded diagram sort of thing. And the original drawings by Betty are yeah. quite small sketches. So I've had to elaborate to make it more visually interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Which contrasts to uh, the Betty Andreessen. I'm not sure I pronounced the surname correctly. Yeah, Andreessen. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Who did some wonderful of her, you know, illustrations of her own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're really, you know, quite Lynchian, David Lynch scenes yeah. from a razorhead or something with all these different types of aliens and, you know... Um, Wonderful imagery. As some of the stuff I found really charming was uh, people's own uh, yeah. interpretations, as well as the professional illustrators who had interpreted photography. This is what takes me back again to the Alan Godfrey alien abduction, because one of the amusing things about that was that he he was asked during the abduct the 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 regression thing, which is in Manchester where he's being regressed, mm. um, what he remembered about the interior of the UFO, and he said he remembered there being a carpet in there nice so you can imagine the aliens would have whizzed down to sort of carpet right sort of <laughs> you know to, to get a, a suitable sort of floor covering before they, they thought oh we'll go and pick that um, copper up on our way as we're passing over Todmorden and, and another stage is he, he says he, he describes the the interior as circular with corners ah. circular with corners <laughs> nice well, if anyone could do that, it has to be an advanced civilization with advanced technology. Non-Euclidean geometry. Sounds <laughs> yes. wonderful. Yeah. Okay, then, Adam. Um, is is there any um, is there any sort of I'm not going to use the words case or sighting because it's more like a story, yeah. really, that we're asking about. That's actually made you sit up and think. Hmm. That that is something really, really intriguing. That you know doesn't appear to be easily explained. That has actually made me think. Hmm. Quite possibly, there is something out there. I was really interested in the cases in Scandinavia, which had a long period of investigation. Yeah, talk you us know. through it. Talk us through that that story, Adam. So, in this valley, over the last hundred years or so, they've seen lights flying around in their valley, essentially, not craft or anything as physical as or obvious as a flying saucer, but uh, bright lights uh, kind of flying around, flitting about, flashing, uh, an electron electronic sort of disturbance in the atmosphere. And over a period of time, various agencies investigated it for decades or so. Yeah, this is the thing about Scandinavia in that um, the Norwegian, I think it's either the Norwegian government or one of the universities actually uh, funded an investigation yeah. of this. So they actually provided magnetometers and like yeah. mini radar sets. Yeah. And you, I think it's UFO Norway. They had a little sort of uh, cabin up in the frozen, freezing cold mountains of Norway yeah. monitoring these things during the 1980s. And they got some really good photographs. 
mm-hmm. and movie Because we're not talking Northern Lights. We're not talking St. Elmo's Fire. This is a different phenomenon. Yeah, well, I mean, some people would call them Earth Lights. You know, the, mm. the, the theory, the popular theory the of pressure the pressure in the rocks. Which yeah, are, yeah, yeah. Which, which is an interesting theory, but it doesn't have any scientific evidence to no. support it, unfortunately, although and, and, it's so, a nice so it, idea. It, am I right in saying that with the uh, it's earth rocks, is it you call it? You say. Yeah. And, it, mm. and it's such a pressure that it releases magnetic energy. Is, yeah. is that, that's basically the idea behind yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very exotic in Norway, but in fact, there's an area of um, a mountain just between Manchester and Sheffield where there's similar lights being seen for centuries called Longdendale Valley. Mm. Um, you've probably driven through it on your on your on the Woodhead Road between um, Sheffield and Manchester, and I've collected loads of um, similar accounts from there. The local mountain rescue team at Glossop—they've got a whole log of cases where they've been called out in the middle of the night from people seeing weird lights up on the hills. Thinking it's a trapped walker. Again, or it's very similar to to what Adam, Adam's been talking about in Hestarland. Yeah. I just found it interesting that it was exposed to scrutiny for such a long time, and it seems to have demystified a little. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. of that scrutiny, the closer you look, the less um, exciting or dramatic it becomes. Did you see it when you were there, Dave? No, it was just there was they had some kind of small um, like a, a, a tourist information thing about it, but you know it was too cold to go anywhere near this valley where where, where these lights were seen. Well, it's been a great conversation, and um, I can't recommend the book enough. Uh, remind Thank us you. exactly what it's called, so all our listeners can rush out and buy it. Yep, it is an illustrated history of UFOs by me, Adam Allsuch Boardman, and the publisher is No Brow. As ever, thank you for listening to UFO Law. You can buy an illustrated history of UFOs directly from the publisher, Nobrell, or from all good bookshops and online retailers. The rest of Adam's distinct and impressive work can be found on his website, aaab-illustration.com. All relevant links are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed the past hour, don't forget to like and subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. And until next time, keep watching the skies.